Kind of a... All right, folks, welcome to Crew Call 2-12, December 2020. And um, there's going to be some firsts on this podcast today because, well, it's the first podcast with my friend Blaine Hadfield of Arrowhead Models. It is a podcast during which he's going to show something that's never been seen before. And it's the first video podcast. Um, I should point out, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but you know what? If Joe Rogan can do it, we can do it. Right, Blaine? That's right. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Blaine, where is Blaine these days? Where is here for you? Here, like physical location? Yeah. Uh, where are you uh, living these days? Yeah. So we live in Wyoming. Oh, in Small Wyoming. Town. You were in Utah before, right? Correct. Why, you know, I, I visited Wyoming once, real fanning, and uh, God, it was beautiful out there. I mean, just really amazing looking. But I guess I was there, it was probably sometime in the early fall, and uh, we were out around uh, Hermosa, I want to say. Uh-huh. And um, I remember going into a gas station to get gas, and um, I, I said to the uh, attendant, Is it always this windy here? And, and he just looked at me like, windy? And, and, I, and then I realized, yeah, I, I guess it is. But it was so windy, I found myself standing behind rocks just to get out of the, the incessant wind. It was like drying out my eyeballs. And I'd never encountered that before. I, yeah, no, there are, there are corridors in Wyoming that are really quite windy. That's not where we're at. I here. see. So, so it wasn't, I, I just assumed it was all that air coming off the, off the front range. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about weather, so I don't know how it, it you know, is generated and how it moves. Yep. But um, yeah, there are some corridors along the I-80 freeway that are perpetually windy. I don't think we were far off of that. You wouldn't have been, yeah. Right. They're in Hermosa. Right. Um, Sheridan is uh, some distance from there. We're, in terms of, sort of our, your east-west, we're almost at center of the state, but we're okay. right up on the Wyoming-Montana border. So we're just a little bit, for all intents and purposes, uh, a little bit east of Yellowstone. It sounds like a place where you probably don't want to be intimidated by winter. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although we just had a major storm here yesterday, so, you know. Yeah, and you know, I would never go so far as to say that you know we have the worst winters, but yeah, we have pretty serious winters. Yep. Um, so Blaine, we've known each other a while. I, I think the first time we ever met in person was probably at the Naperville show or whichever city it was, maybe in after Naperville. I, was, I can never remember the name of that city. What was, what was the Naperville meet after Naperville? It was um, Lyle. Possibly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not sure, uh, you know, which which show that was, but I, I know Scott and I drove out there in some marathon uh, one day driving session and we ended up having dinner with you uh, one of those nights. And that was back when you were with a different company. So maybe you can just kind of talk a little bit about how you got started as a as a model railroad manufacturer, really. Yeah, absolutely. So Um, I own and operate a company called Arrowhead Models. Um, We launched our first products uh, approximately two years ago um, at the National Train Show two years ago, so 2018. And that was your hopper? That was the committee design hopper, yes. Um, But obviously it didn't begin there for me. Uh, For approximately 10 years prior, I was employed by um, a company called Exact Rail, which I'm sure your users are familiar with. Everybody's Um, heard of Exact Rail, yeah. Had a friend join me. (laughs) You'll have to forgive me for that. That's quite all right. Uh, Adds to the authenticity of the whole thing. It does, yeah. yeah, so I led product development for ExactRail for approximately a decade. I just assumed um, you were a principal in ExactRail, but uh, is that not the case? 
It's not the case. Okay. Um, no, at present, uh, ExactRail is owned by um, a gentleman named John Pastana. And uh, he's either been a co-owner or full owner. He's full owner now for, for the entirety of that company's existence. But mm -hmm. um, in approximately 2017, if I remember correctly, um, it became clear to me that, that it was just time to go a different direction. Um, you know, there were, there were other things that I wanted to accomplish and, and Arrowhead is the product of that. So, so Arrowhead is totally your company? 100% owned by uh, myself. So. so it sounds like it's pretty all engaging. You're not bored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're a very small company. Um, you know, things are trending in all the right directions, but, you know, as of present, it's just me. Um, you know, my wife uh, contributes. She responds to emails and accompanies me to shows from time to time and certainly does everything that she can to help me. She's absolutely fabulous. But, um, you know, in terms of product development and, and those domains of, of the business and um, it's, you know, me and her, so. Boy, so yeah. that's, a, that's a daunting kind of a task, particularly when you are doing the, uh, the level of detail and some of the cutting edge things that, that you're doing on, you. on your models. Uh, yeah. But you know what, in a way, I think you could only do it to that degree when you have complete control over something like that and 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 you know through almost effort of will you're 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 making this happen yeah so you're you're exactly right um in fact it's one of the aspects of our business that that we consider to be our our cachet maybe even uniquely our cachet insofar as um every other model train manufacturer of which i am aware um, breaks product development up among different divisions of people, right? There's different divisions of labor, sure. different divisions of people are in charge of. And typically how that looks, speaking sort of in the broadest possible sense is model train manufacturers will do the research and then they will turn that research over most commonly to a Chinese organization that does the design the CAD tooling and so forth. Um, and for us, and this will always be the case for our business, it's, it's, it's very important to our identity. Um, we do everything we can not to separate those activities because the research component is what directly informs the design component. You do right. research so that you can do design. And the more familiar and the more intense and, and articulate your research is, right? The more that pays through in the design. And, and one of the things that, like, to, to help, sort of, it's a very simple concept, right? But to convey how, the, like, the magnitude of what that means to the design process, I mean, imagine if I took a, a picture of an everyday object in your home and your, steer, your steering wheel of your car, you handle it all the time. Mm-hmm sit down at the table, take a pencil and draw that story. Right. Right. And you realize we'll try to describe it to somebody else so that they can design it. Yeah. And you realize in that moment that there's a plethora of decisions that you have to make that become really, really, really difficult. Um, you know, in a relative sense, the more divorced you are from that product. Right. So in a way, you, you've sort of disconnected all of these um, potential uh, misunderstandings because it's all happening in blame, right? Right. But yeah. the skill set that you have to have to do that is not typical, right? Because now you, as Mr. Arrowhead, you have to be a marketing guy, a promotional guy, sales guy, design guy, research guy, and you have to have incredible computer chops, right? Right. 
Well, is that something yeah. you had, Sorry. you know, from your time doing other things, or something you had to develop for this? Um, well, I definitely got my start at Exact Rail, but my contribution at Exact Rail uh, looked differently than it does at Arrowhead in some unsurprising ways, right? Um, I entered Exact Rail at a moment when the company was established. You're going to see my dog walk across here. Forgive me for that. This is my dog, Willie, and I absolutely hey, love Lily. A Willie, like Willie Nelson. Willie, okay. Willie. Um, yeah, so it, it, it developed in some surprising ways in that um, um, my contribution was at a fairly high level at Exact Rail. Um, at, at no point there was I myself doing the design. So, hmm. so my entrance to Arrowhead sort of went a different direction. I, I, I carried the title of a, you know, an executive's title at Exact Rail, and and we were building a team and an operation, at least from my end, that maybe had that guys. At least, I mean, we were a small company. I don't, I don't want to like sell my credentials, right? I mean, there are no big companies in model railroading, but right. um, nonetheless. Um, we were we were well funded. We were very aggressive, and so I was looking at implementing the kind of schema that would support a really aggressive and robust production schedule from a high level. Sure. Um, when it came to design and those other facets, um, I was primary and responsible for those for those endeavors, but. But I was so at a higher level. I, I, I wasn't myself using CAD or any of that. Um, I had to develop those skills after the fact um, and, and brought those to Arrowhead. So, for example, the committee design Hopper, um, which was our first release at Arrowhead, was the first car that I myself had ever designed. Mm -hmm. so. and, and just, you know, from start to finish, how long did it take? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It took. I mean, it's a lot of work, um, you know. And things have have even gotten a little bit slower now. Insofar as uh, shortly after launching the company, the manufacturer that we're using, and this might be a an event that some of your listeners are familiar with. One of the primary manufacturers in the industry closed its doors. Well, when I say manufacturer, forgive me, there's an opportunity for ambiguity here. Um, I mean uh, a Chinese manufacturer. Right, uh, right. Um, um, and uh, like many in the industry, we were upset by that. So now, now had, was that COVID related or is this prior to that? This was prior to that. So this was. Um, in late 2018. Okay. And the one you know, everybody started, knows about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were really fortunate. Um, I had a good relationship, or at least I felt like I had a good relationship with the owner of that enterprise. And he did me a couple of real solids, you know, really um, as a new manufacturer, you're particularly vulnerable to all sorts of different influences. You're particularly vulnerable. And the earlier you are in the cycle, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the more vulnerable you are, right? Mm -hmm. Losing your manufacturer isn't like, that's a big deal. And um, just about a week before those doors were closed, he sent us all of our product, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and we were the only one to do this out of maybe 25 businesses. Um, he sent us all of our tooling too. So we weren't burdened with the, the exercise of being new and being overwhelmed by everything that's happening and then having to go out and chase our, our tooling and, you know. Right, right. And of course, I'd heard stories 
that not everybody was so was so fortunate. So um, your tooling was all when you say tooling, do you mean physical tooling or the electronic uh, versions? Well, uh, the electronic versions all reside with us. Okay. So again, to parlay back to um, um, that point of our conversation, when we do the design, uh, we're effectively writing the book and we're just turning those files over to a partner of some kind. Who prints it. To print it. Gotcha. Um, and so that, all of that and, tooling came came with your product, uh, literally physically shipped. Yeah, wow. and we saw that on the shipping list, and that was really unusual. Like that's a scary thing because um, did he do that without much. without you asking for it? Correct. Yeah. Ah. And when I followed up with him about it, he just said, "Don't worry, it's for your own good." Had you and, already been? Uh, physically over in China many times to yes. kind of yeah so yes. you've done the done the whole thing mm -hmm. but have you had have you been able to or have you had to do that for Arrowhead or is it all remote now no it's not all remote um, I have done that far less than I would like there's obviously COVID restrictions to travel sure. that's encumbered that's that's encumbered a lot um, for the whole industry. I don't, I don't know how closely people are, you know, what the litmus test is for, for most people, but things have slowed down. It's apparent. You see that in a lot of manufacturers, things have slowed down. Um, we've, we've had some product delays. Um, everything is just running a little bit slower on that. Sure. We've seen it with everybody's supply chain. Everybody. And, and a lot of that doesn't relate to the manufacturers themselves. It can be even further upstream, you know, just getting steel to cut molds, plastic to, to run parts. I mean, right. packaging, like all of those things upstream get affected and it all just sort of, you know, percolates down. And, and, right. Uh, so things are a little slower. So for example, um, you know, we have product that's coming to us and our delivery time right now is, let's see, it left the factory on November 8th. We're still waiting for it. So um, is it on the water or is it stuck in the port or do yeah. you know? Yeah, it's stuck in logistics channels here in the US. Right. But, you know, everything just slows down a little bit. So this is the... Um, Second round of something we haven't talked about yet, I take it? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and, and we can talk about it here. It's, yeah, well, uh, I wanted to finish up about the hopper, actually, because oh, yeah. I, I wanted to know, among other things, how did you arrive at that particular choice as your, as your initial model? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so believe it or not, it wasn't my first choice. My first choice was the uh, ACF 4600 covered hopper. That was the car that I wanted to do. Um, and then Athern made an announcement for that car. And I, I, didn't, I didn't back away from it right away. Mm -hmm. um, but I recognized and you know, felt like there was no way around the massive um, distribution channel that Athern has. Oh, sure. That, that a new company lacks. And I thought, um, I thought that I would get squashed on that. And that would, you know, probably be the end of the effort. So we pivoted to the second car, which was the, um, uh, what we call the committee design hopper. Um, now, the ACF Covered Hopper is an important car for a lot of reasons. One of them is it had this massive production um, timeline. The prototype right. was produced from the mid 60s to the early 80s. Through that, you've got a lot of different phase variations. It was owned by almost everybody in, in one variation or another. Obviously, I'm speaking a little hyperbolically, but- Very, very broad appeal to- very our broad. Yeah, wide so, range of modeling uh, eras too, so. Yeah, so as a new company, that's a really solid first choice. Right. Um, the committee design hopper is almost the inverse of that. 
in that it has a much narrower paint scheme list, but in some respects, it's one of the most important post-World War II cars of any car type, I would argue. And one of the ways that you can make that argument is just by the numbers alone. The Pennsylvania Railway had over 16,000. Jeez. That's amazing. Um, there is no post-war car of any singular class with, with numbers of that, that magnitude. Right. So right. massive numbers. In fact, the Pennsylvania had so many committee design hoppers that by the time they went into service in Conrail, there were 15,076 on roster. And Conrail attempted to standardize its conveyances around 100-ton cars, right? Because right. by 76, a 100-ton car was more or less the standard. Yep. But they had so many committee design hoppers in particular that it was impossible for them to do that. And they stuck with the car. Do you, do you know offhand how long they lasted into Conrail? Yeah, so uh, they lasted into the 90s. Obviously, wow. their numbers diminished year over year. Right. Um, but in 1990, in 19, ah, oh gosh, sorry. This is all impromptu, and I haven't looked at these numbers in a while. Um, all right. At about 1990, yeah, there were still, if I recall, 5,000 cars on roster. Like, and most car classes aren't themselves 5,000 cars deep, let alone ones that are uh, 30 years old, right? I right. mean, the enormity of this car class is just difficult to, to really wrap your arms around in any significant way. Hmm. Um, so... That was a very important car. In addition to the Pennsylvania paint schemes, um, the Rio Grande was an original buyer of the committee design car. And although the Rio Grande didn't have them in anything near the quantities that the Pennsylvania had, um, it really became like the car that characterized the fleet from there on. Mm -hmm. uh, once the Rio Grande acquired the committee car from Bethlehem, um, they really never looked back in terms of its design. So the committee design car is a 70 ton three bay hopper. Um, and uh, when the Rio Grande took the step towards 100 ton quads, that design is effectively a derivation of the committee design. I see. So beefed up version of it. Yep. Yep. Very similar features, um, you know, in, yeah. Um, so you've so, had what, two, two runs of it now or just the first one? Of the committee design car? Just mm. the first one. Just the yeah. first one. Are there subsequent runs planned? Yeah, there are. Um, and so what we released in the first run of the committee design car are um, so we did something with the committee design car that I think is special. We, we tooled two uh, completely unique cars. Um, so put an asterisk next to that because that, that I'll expound on that here momentarily. All right. I mean, they obviously had things in common a lot. Probably. They, they obviously did, yeah. But in terms, you know, if, if you're a model train manufacturer, you've got two costs, right, in, two, in, in, in every project. Obviously there's more than this, I'm simplifying, but you've got the, the tooling cost, which is a significant portion at the outset, and you've got the unit, the piece cost. Sure. Right after. Um, the way unit costs, or the way the tooling costs, the way we count cars, is what cars do we develop that have unique body tooling, okay? And not the various parts that go on it. Because, As opposed to detailing, right. Right, because those four slide molds that generate that body tooling is where your cost resides. I see. So okay. if you can get two different cars out of the same basic tooling, you're way ahead. You're way ahead, but if you can't, 
then you're 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 paying for an additional car and um for us uh we went the latter so there are um two body molds two separate and completely distinct bodies for the pennsylvania pullman standard version of the committee design car which was again a pullman built car and there are all of these cars were built to the same design parameters but when one you know when you're building when you're building a lot as large as the pennsylvania did um obviously there's no single car builder that can take on that that magnitude of, of product outflow. Right. Uh, Pennsylvania went to all the major builders and then built um, a significant portion of those cars in their own shops as well, Altoona built cars. So you have the Altoona built cars, which roughly compromise, constitute about half of that production. And then you've got Pullman and American Car and Foundry and Bethlehem and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the Pullman version for the Pennsylvania and then we did the Bethlehem versions for the Rio Grande and the Southern, because the Southern Railway also owned them. And those two versions, the way, in, in very, very minor ways, um, those versions were different. And we wanted to capture the nuances of those differences. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to do that without, without creating distinct sets of body tooling. And so, not not and do it right not and do it right and it was one of those things where i doubt there's a customer out there i mean there are a few yeah we know probably personally maybe yeah (laughs) who really appreciate the differences between those two cars because they are very very minute we're working at a very sort of esoteric level Mm -hmm. um but it was important for us so that's what we did so there's you know, so in terms of our cost and in, ter- in some respects, in terms of just our development, um, the committee design car is as distinct as a box car and a gondola. Like right. they were, in, in order to understand those differences, it required a research effort that was equivalent for the Pullman car as what it would have been for an all new car. You I know? believe it. The, you know, and so uh, we're very proud of that. Um, and there because it was a Penzi yeah. card, did that help you uh, get the research you needed? Because there's so much, so much of a volume of information from the Penzi people. Um, no, actually, it didn't. Really? Uh, yeah, I. Um, I mean, there are great people in that society, and that is um, a very healthy, you know, vibrant society that puts out a lot of literature and, and um, a lot of work. But to be completely honest, um, no, the, the Pennsylvania component of that project was probably more challenging than even the Rio Grande and Southern. Were you able to uh, get face to face and hands on with one of these anywhere? Did any exist when you? Yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, we don't develop cars unless we can do that. Oh, okay. that I mean, explains I would, it. I wouldn't say that it will never happen. Um, obviously, you know, or there's some you cars need good documentation. <laughs> but we, um, as a rule, we see builders prints and then serious field time next to a car. So there is a car at the Danbury Railway Museum in Danbury, Connecticut. And I flew out to Danbury to research that yep. and spent uh, a fair amount of time. I also uh, went to um, uh, a railway museum in the south to, to uh, do field work on a Southern car. And then uh, there was a, a Rio Grande car that was uh, also near nearby. And uh, I, I can oh. tell you probably really enjoy that kind of research and documentation. Otherwise, I do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you would fail at a business like this if you didn't. But exactly. Uh, 
you know, the one of the reasons that's so important to us is because most of these cars were built at a time when plans were all drawn on vellum. And people who've worked in a manufacturing environment know that what happens in the office and what is practicable, practicable in a manufacturing space sometimes differ. Right. And, and so we've seen a lot of examples of that boy. Yeah. Yeah. So you get out on the floor, um, there's an inefficiency or there's something that if you tweak this a little bit, you're going to open up efficiencies on the manufacturing floor. And so those changes are made and it's not the case that the plans are updated. Right. Because you, you don't go back and you redraw plans because you change the plasma cut. There's you no know? need. You're already making it. You're already making it. If, if, you make adjustments to a press break or something like that, right? Like you don't, you don't go back and, I mean, there's thousands of hours, I'm sure, and drawing all that, right. you know, all those different plans up. So, um, you know, it's a rule for us. Um, you've got to get your hands on manufacturing prints, but you also have to go out and do the heavy lifting. Right. So the, the gondola was, a much less daunting task. I'll bet you didn't have to travel quite as far for that. Oh, well, daunting can get quantified in a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, what's unique about the gondola, and I, I have one here, I'll show it if I may, for people who are less familiar. How am I doing? You're on full screen now. Okay. So, um, the gondola, what differentiates this from really any car that's, that's ever come before is it's a, it's a composite model of brass and plastic. And In other words, it's what we've been clamoring for for eons. I would like to think, yeah. I mean, it would be great if, if um, yeah, and... and um, Did you want to point anything else out about the, the model itself while we've got you on, on the big screen? Sure, yeah, I can do that. So there are, what differentiate this model from others, um, in addition to its composite nature, is the quantity of its parts. Why there don't you are, make, sure, make sure everyone understands what you mean by composite? So. Um, you have an undeck handy? No, I don't. <laughs> Got some dust on it. So the model, is built with brass. There's there's more brass on this car than there is plastic. So it, look, it looks like you've got a whole brass sheet that you're overlaying plastic to? That's correct, yeah. And the reason that's significant is because in the manufacturing process, right, speaking specifically of model trains, um, you cut molds, which are, cavities into which plastic is injected and the plastic of course takes the shape right um, but plastic is is a is viscous and there's only that cavity can only become so thin right before plastic will cease to flow well right? plus you can dent brass uh, to make it look like a lived-in kind of a model yeah. and that's what's so attractive uh, you know from the modeling standpoint i think yeah, and there are some people out there doing some amazing things. Right. Um, now, you know, may, may I ask, and if it's proprietary, just tell me, but how are you bonding the plastic to the brass? That, that is a little proprietary. Okay. We, you, you asked about, um, you asked about um, how difficult the project was, and you thought, you know, maybe with less travel, there was less dif difficulty. What was, what's been so challenging about the product is we've done something radically different. I mean, it is a, it is a radical departure from a manufacturing sense in, for all that word means. And did they, did they raise an eyebrow when you broached this, uh, this yeah. methodology to them? Yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were supposed to, we were supposed to receive the car in, uh, March. And there were um, just a lot of challenges because you asked about bonding and that's really astute question because, because you're right, right? 
the kind of glues that one would use to bond metal are like on the opposite spectrum of what you're using when you're when you're bonding um, high flow plastics, you know, right. like acetyl. And similarly, there's a similar problem with paint, right? The kinds of sure. paint that you would use to adhere to a metal surface, again, are very, very different from what you would use for think, a plastic. Think surface. scale coat one versus scale coat two. Yes. Yeah. And so all of these things within this matrix, right, of parts that there are, it's just extremely challenging. And, and another problem is um, the the car doesn't have a body in a traditional sense, right? Right. Typically, typically the way a model looks is you've got that, you know, we talked about the four slide, the body and how, when those are different, those are different cars from our sure. point of view. Um, there is no body. There's, there's a bunch of little parts that all go together. What holds the corners together? Um, the corners of the top cord. So, um, well, I mean, what holds the side to the end? Is it, is it, it's not pinned. one solid no. piece of metal wrapped around no. the whole floor, is it? No, it's metal pins. And <laughs> I don't know if you can, I, this is going to be tough to do. Forgive me if I fail, but you can see a lot. Maybe if I turn this, you can kind of see it grab the little light. Oh yeah, no, I can see that. So those cutouts, um, are one of the unique features of the Greenville build of this car. And on the corners, again, just if- Yep, I can, you see, can that. see that. Yep. So the corners, the side sheets and the end sheets of the car have these cutouts right where they would adjoin. Sure. And that would allow the car to flex a little bit without puckering those side, side and end sheets. And so they cut them down and then the top cord, and there's like this, you know, app, you know, um, I can't find the right word right now, like a <laughs> ventricle is the word that's in my mind. Forgive me for that. Um, but yeah, there's like this cutout, right? And you can see through, and then the, the, uh, the, the aperture, thank you. The, um, the top cord, this um, side superior top cord and the in. Are, are themselves actually pinned together. And that and by pinning them as they have- We're talking um, about prototype or model? The prototype and the in model. model. Oh, we okay. duplicated the manufacturing technique in the model that they used on the freight car. And there are little tiny, tiny wire pins that get pushed down through the plastic. And the way we did the injection molding, those two sides pinned together, and, and just like the, the prototype. And then and this and so, is all hand, basically hand assembled there. Yeah, yeah. And so when you look at the top cords, there's just, just you know, it's not one piece, right? Just like the prototype. Wow. And I, can't, was, I can't wait to see one of these in person. You know, they it kind of snuck up on me and I missed it uh, mm -hmm. on the first go around. And, uh, and, and that's what caused me to contact you because I thought I'm supposed to be on top of this stuff. How did this I'm escape sorry. my attention? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will get you some. We have some coming. Like I said, they're they're making their way to us, and uh, we'll make if sure they ever get out of logistics, right? Right. Yeah. Hey, that, you know, especially at this time of year, I've I've got things that I've sent um, that should have taken a day or two that are taking over a week with no end in sight. So yeah. I think the whole, the whole supply chain is a little, little bogged down right now. Hopefully, it, hopefully it clears up in January. Let's just put yeah. it that way. So we live in a small town, um, for Wyoming, Sheridan is not a small town, but for anyone else, Sheridan What's the population roughly? About 17,000. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's half the size of my small town. Okay. And then because Sheridan is the biggest thing going, you have to go effectively a hundred plus 150 miles in any direction before you get to another town of equivalent size. So we're, are you anywhere near Cody? I have, I have a, yeah. I have a sound install customer in, in, in Cody that keeps shipping me things and I keep shipping back to him and we've had some shipping adventures. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, we haven't had any shipping adventures, but Cody is about a hundred miles to our 
far west. Okay. So Sheridan is right at the base of the Bighorn Mountains. And effectively, you go over the Bighorn Mountains and then across the valley and you're in Cody to the other side. Nice. So the gondola, I think, was what got a lot of people's attention. But um, rumor has it that you've got some other things that are, are imminent. Anything you can talk about or even... Yeah, so this about. is pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, so I mentioned at the outset of the podcast that the first car was going to be the ACF 4600. Well, um, we have announced that, that we're picking that project back up again and that that will be our third all new car from our ride models. And no one has ever seen these before. So this is a first, but we have tooling samples of the all new ACF 4600. Gorgeous. Back off just a little. And I think, yeah, okay, we're getting a little better focused that way. Yeah, wow. You know, it, it hits me like like a rail yard models kit. You know what I mean? With all of the all of the fine brass work combined with uh, the, you know the plastic. It's it's yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. All of the brass, you know, oh. inner bay stiffeners. Um, the uh, um, the bay faces there are cut in brass because on an ACF forty six on a Pullman standard covered hopper. Um, the bays as they come down to the gate are press broke and welded down a seam. Sure. But, uh, for ACF, um, they're, they're only press broke on a small margin and then there's another plate that's, that's affixed to the side and welded. Mm -hmm. And that plate has overlap. So the inner part of the bay comes down like this and on a Pullman standard car, it wraps really clean, but on an ACF car, there's, there's a plate that, that overlaps like that. Did right you feel that because of, because of the overlap, it would have been hard to tool it like that. Whereas with the brass, you can just simply apply it to it. Right. It would have been impossible to tool it accurately. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by, by using brass as we have, it's got a very fine relief and it is, a hundred percent prototypic. And then of course, all of the fine details and everything that you see there. So What's we the, are- What's uh, the MSRP are, on this car? Do you have one yet? To be determined, yeah. Because yeah. I would think the labor component on that would be high. Well, to put this into perspective, the rail gone was absolutely groundbreaking with 199 parts. Now, Right. Again, put this in perspective. Um, Rapido, which does an absolutely wonderful job on their passenger cars, mm -hmm. announced that with their finer diner, it had 172 parts per car. Memory serves. And, so and how many did you say on the gondola? 199. On a gondola. Jeez. And one Amazing. of the things that, that we take a lot of pride in is. is Cost gets assessed in a lot of different ways, but I think if you're trying to distill down cost into a single metric, part count best summarizes cost because- It's directly related to labor. It's directly related to labor in all sorts, right? So it's more engineering time. You have to cut more molds, right? Because there's more parts, there's more cavities. Um, you've got greater breakage rates. If you're scrapping a car in the manufacturing process, like one every hundred parts, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a gondola with 30 parts, you're scrapping one of every three cars. If you have a gondola with 199 parts, you don't mm. finish the whole car. I never even uh, thought about that aspect of it, right? Yeah. yeah so does the, does the uh, covered hopper have a couple more parts to it? Yeah. Do, you, do you have a count by uh, off the top of your head? Well, it depends on the phase variation, but okay. 240. So that's groundbreaking. Absolutely groundbreaking. Hmm. To put that into perspective, most of your high-end gondolas, right? Companies at the highest level of the game, 
um, 30 to 40 parts, right? And so for us to put together a car of this complexity that's this groundbreaking and to do it at 54.95 for me is something we take a lot of pride in. We feel really good about that. Yep, yep. Well, you know, that doesn't strike me as an outrageous price for that car, particularly when it's, when it's what it is, but also when you compare it to other offerings that aren't that different in price from it. It's like no comparison, really. Right. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. you do it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're going to make those comparisons, the consumer is going to want to compare a gondola to a gondola, right? Right. The manufacturer just sees the whole equation differently. The manufacturer is like, look, product complexity, part count is what I'm comparing it to. So I'm comparing the gondola to a passenger car that's $120. Mm. Right. right. Um, you know, and, so. And anybody with eyeballs is going to tell the difference between that gondola and, you know, the old MDC. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. So, and you know, um, the M MDC car is still available. If um, you know, if you're a modeler that has a different preference for how you want to be engaged in the hobby, still a great option. And Walther's did a, a mainline version of the car, which is sort of striking at the same sort of price point, right? Level of engagement. Um, it's a great option. So. Um, you, know, you probably don't want to drop yours on the floor, so it's probably not ideal for six-year-olds. I don't think that's the demographic we're aiming at here. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. But go on. So, how many? How far ahead are you thinking? You know, like how many projects do you have conceptually? Um, I. I mean, you well, think about a year per project, right? At yeah. Least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm probably working about five years ahead of our. Really? Right now. And uh, is there, are there, um, are you able, well, obviously, I guess you're able to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. So, you know, you're not just focused on one car at a time. Yeah, to say I'm working five years ahead probably deserves some explanation. Okay. Because it's, it's not the case that we've just got five years of cars tooled up and ready to go, right? I mean, if a person, I, you, you know, that's not what's happening. But what is happening is um, we, we have a number of cars that are finished design and in tooling now beyond the ACF 4600 that are being tooled as we speak. Um, we have a number of cars that are finished in the design phase and are waiting to start tooling. Okay. Um, and then you also have a couple of cars that are in some design phase of development present. And then in order, you know, the pro process doesn't begin with design. There's a preliminary phase of research where you have to do a sufficient amount of research to, to understand whether the project is, is commercially viable or not. And then there's sure. a much more advanced stage of research where um, you're trying to inform the design effort. And if you sum all of that together, the kinds of projects that we're looking at now in that initial phase of research, right, which is, which is real work, like there's, there's real work behind that. You can't, to execute at this level, um, you have to have a lot of information to feed that. Exactly. Right. And, and so to go out and to get that and um, to make that happen is itself a lot of work. And if, if, if that's where our look ahead begins, then we're about five years out. Interesting. Um, Let me ask you something. Do you consider yourself a model railroader in the sense that you have a layout or you want to have a layout or you've built a layout in the past? I really don't know that about you. Yeah, yeah that's a really great question. Um, 
you and I are like in sync in some weird way because that's something I've thought about. Um, for a long time, I've had a, a theory that that a person is either fundamentally a model railroader, like if you were to draw like some sort of Venn diagram, right. Right? all these interests, and they do, they all sort of come together with railroading. But my experience is that people fundamentally are like railroad enthusiasts of the prototype, right? And maybe they engage in model railroading, right? Or they're, they're model railroaders fundamentally. Um, 20 years ago, I would have definitely been the former. Um, I do have modeling interests. So I, um, I have, I have zero time. <laughs> right. Um, so I will put this in quotation marks. Um, I model the Union Pacific from 1972 to 1984. It's a big range. Uh, big range. There's a reason for that range. Um, but I, I model that in um, a very obscure area of Nevada called Meadow Valley Wash. Unfamiliar with it. It is, yeah. Um, and Why that, that spot? Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. One, it's exceedingly remote, um, desolate, um, very intimidating, very daunting railroading country. Um, what was the driving force behind it being there? Is it, uh, you know, a mining uh, kind of a thing or something? Oh, else? it's the it's the UP main line. So the Union Pacific um, ran out across Wyoming, out of Cheyenne, Omaha, yes. Cheyenne, right, um, to Ogden, and then um, it split, and one leg of the railroad went out to Portland, and the other leg of the railroad went down to LA. And this is the main line as it went from Salt Lake uh, all, almost to Las Vegas. So I see. the area that I model is just, you know, 100 miles, 150 miles railroad north of Las Vegas. So when you say you model it, what does that entail? Well, right now, it, it, it honestly doesn't entail much because I don't have a layout. But I, I like the people who buy our products, so many of them anyway. Dream of having you one. have a dream. I have a dream. I um, so that layout was started when I lived in Utah, and part of the way that we funded Arrowhead and got it started was we sold our house and we took all the money from the sale of our house and we put it into the company. I and call so, that all in. Yeah, we we were all in. Wow, um, and uh, so. In that home, um, I had space for a layout and I was in the early phases, but actively building a layout. Um, we haven't got back to, to that same place here. Well, so. did, did any of it, you know, come with you? Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, some, some buildings did. Would you like me to show you? You have one right there, sure. Well, it's a step away. You'll see me disappear for just a few seconds, but it'll be <laughs> worthwhile. Great video, Blaine. Let's do it. Okay. One moment. <laughs> While Blaine steps away, um, I guess I will talk a little bit about um, what's going on with my own layout. Oh, no, he's back. Oh, geez. He's back much faster than I thought. Yeah, I can see why you brought that with you. So this is a true scale model of the depot. Gorgeous. Caliente. And so the Union Pacific had a number of five um, mission style depots along the line. And what motivated that for the Union Pacific is um, they were from Barstow, you know, down Cajon, they were competing with the Santa Fe, in some cases on Santa Fe track. You're, Santa you're saying this was in Caliente, California? Caliente, Nevada. Oh, Nevada. Okay. Because I was going to say, I'm very familiar with Caliente, California, and I can't imagine something like that being there. Yeah. Wow. And you might tell, I don't know how good the lighting is, but Pretty good, the, actually. the building is kind of a mint green, a really soft mint green. Oh, yeah. 
So that was the actual color of the station into the 70s. What's it made out of? It's a wood frame structure covered in, in plaster. Wow. Oh, wait, the model or the prototype? The model. Oh, the model is also a wood frame structure. <laughs> okay. Covered in plaster. But um, yeah, so um, one of the, the, you know, distinguishing features is that you have these beautiful mission style stations, um, but they're in like the smallest of towns. I mean, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, the population of Caliente, but it can't be more than a thousand. I mean, it's, I mean that's gigantic. Yeah. You know. So is it a complete, total, utter scratch build? Yes. So you made the molds, cast. Wow. Well, we, we didn't injection mold this. It was scratch built from wood and, and assembled in that. Yeah. Well, I, maybe I misunderstood. I thought you said the walls were, were, were plaster casting. No, no. Okay. Walls are wood covered in plaster, you can see. Gotcha. Yep. That does not look like a, uh, a quick build. No, it wasn't. I'm going to set it back so I have my hands sure. free. One second. Sure. I didn't expect to see uh, that as part of uh, our conversation, Blaine. That was, a, that was a nice surprise. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's there are things that, you know, are, are conducive to, you know, this layout that will be built, but. Yeah. Um, You're young so enough that you'll get it done. I hope so. I mean, you know, people ask me how long I've been working on my layout and, mm -hmm. um, I always kind of chuckle at that at that question because which layout are we talking about, right? So um, built a lot of layouts over the over time, and the present layout is probably about seven or so, maybe maybe eight years of of, of effort. But but I started building the layout in this house thirty years ago, so it kind of shows you that. I mean, all the efforts over all of that time, for the most part, only produced uh, as a lasting effect benchwork. Right. Every last inch of it has been, as my buddy Dave likes to say, layout kaboomed. He right. would come in with an idea, and he 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 just you know describe it to me, and then grin heavily and say, "Layout kaboom!" And I think, "Oh gosh, there's all these man hours going out the window." But most of the time, these ideas he had 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 merit. Um, and I think I decided about eight years ago when I, when I became a prototype modeler, when I, when I, when I stopped being proto freelance and figured out what my prototype was going to be. Um, and I, I had actually basically learned a lot of new techniques and gotten rid of a lot of the, you know, plaster on screen wire kind of stuff from the, you know, the dark ages. Um, that's when I, I finally started to feel like I was, I was, I, I knew what I was doing and, and then I could just do it. You know, I didn't have to sort of be um, R and Ding my way through the whole thing, you know? Um, and, and finding the prototype helps a lot because once you get that figured out, I'm, I'm sort of modeling a spaghetti bowl. So um, it took me a while just to get my head wrapped around the actual prototype because it's so complex and that sort of greater Scranton area, you know. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm having a I'm having a heck of a time with it. I I, I have to say. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. I'm still full time uh, employed in my own in my own IT consulting business. But uh, the way things are these days, you know, I'm I'm able to sort of manage my day how I want to manage it, and uh, I'm able to, you know, not waste time. So uh, I'm I'm able to be productive in my business and be productive in the, in, in the layout. And, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good time. You know, so, I, it's been a while since we've talked about this. Um, I recall your, you model Conrail about 1976 ish. It's actually 84. 84. Okay. Yeah. But I didn't when, get the Conrail part right. When you, yeah. When you knew me earlier, I was modeling early nineties Conrail. Okay. And um, 
that was but 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 when i looked at my uh at what i wanted to model um and i looked at what was vibrant and and had the kind of traffic that was attractive to me and motive power mm -hmm. i can't leave that out um it, it became obvious that that area was being greatly uh, diminished in the early 90s. And if I would just go back to the early 80s, I could have my cake and eat it too. So I, I gave up uh, wide nose diesels and okay. um, ended up being able to include the DNH and a lot of interaction with them. So now I've got the three builder thing going and uh, uh, my main industry at Mahupani was generating a hundred car loads a day. So it was kind of like a big deal on that line. And it's a big deal on my layout too. So there's a lot of reasons I ended up landing on that uh, 1984 uh, timeframe. Okay. So I uh, reached for a car. You probably saw me do that. I did, Anya. I'm, I'm tantalized yeah. as usual. I, uh, it's, it's the box is taped shut, which doesn't make for a quick, <laughs> quick show on a video podcast. That's okay. Our witty repartee will carry the day until you get that box open, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. But this is obviously related to what we're talking about, and I can't even imagine what it well, would it be. Well, it is, because um, some people are surprised to know that um, uh, CSX acquired a number of Railgon cars, some of which they repainted. Hmm. You did some of those paint schemes, but you're telling me this would be too late for your interest. That's right. In fact, I had to, I had to divest myself from uh, everything CSX and go back to Chessy, you know, B&O, C&O uh, labeled things, including locomotives. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the B&O and the Chessie was actually the first railroad that I ever modeled when I was young. Really? First thing when I sort of turned the corner towards... Were you, were you from that area originally? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I mowed lawns as a kid. Okay. And I made $3 an hour or $3 a week mowing lawns for my dad. And I inherited some equipment and locomotives from my brother and from my grandpa. And some of those, you know, were Atlas locomotives, which- um, Yellow box ones? Would have taken me, yeah, like three summers of mowing lawns to be able to afford. And so I took a step back and uh, rather conveniently, so many of them were Chessie or Baltimore, Ohio, or Chesapeake in Ohio. And, and so it was a matter of economy. I just, I just made sense to go that direction. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you, if you're as old as I am and you've been doing it as long as I have, I, I can remember back when I remember when train miniature came out, you remember them? Uh -huh. Oh yeah. And, and when you could buy an Atherin, gondola not quite like yours for dollar 98 and that was a lot of money back then i yeah. used, to, used to have to save up for that yeah 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 so it's all relative you know and and i think you know some people complain about what things cost these days but i think we're i think we're living in a golden age of of products i mean they're incredible i, I do too i really do and part of the reason is is in 1985, let's say, when you could buy a $1.99 gondola from Trending Miniatures, that, that was often it. That was as good as it got. That's right. You didn't have the option for the higher quality stuff. Today, you have the option for higher quality products if you want to afford them, if you can afford them, if, right? You still have the option to go back and get the more economical stuff. Like yeah, in a way, in a way, I think the in, in many cases, certainly not all, but in many cases, the higher quality items are actually a much better value in terms of paying for the buck than the so-called en entry level products. They because, you know, 
the, some of that cost is, is, is kind of sunk. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, when you compare it from a value quotient, you know, I, I'm really, you know, guys like you and, and Dave Lelbeck and, and Nick Molo, I mean, you guys are doing amazing stuff. Thank you. Lane, yeah. it was great. It was great talking with you here. And I, I before we close up, um, it would be I would be remiss if I didn't say, so this uh, covered hopper. When are we going to see this? Do you have any kind of any sense of uh, when that might be seeing the light of day, or is it just premature to speculate? Well, it is premature to speculate. Um, always when I speculate in sort of impromptu situations like this, it's always wrong. I feel like I get it wrong and I feel like I, I set expectations up and let people down. So we don't try to speculate. Yep. Learn my lessons. Um, that said, it will definitely be early next year. Oh, okay. So it's not going to be like a whole year away. No, no. First quarter next year. That's exciting. So, so it's, it's well along. Well along. Will that be the only thing you think we'll see from you next year? Or is there a possibility of something else next year? Yeah. Oh, we'll have this conversation again. Yeah, I'd love to. All right, Blaine. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I think people are going to be very interested in uh, in in today's scoop. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. It was great to talk to you. Great to catch up. Same here. Take care.